Our Bible reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bars of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is fallen. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is the word of God. Well, once again, a very, very warm welcome to you all. If you are new here this morning, my name is Martin. I'm the rector of Christ Church Midrand. Really lovely to have you here with us on this Sunday morning. We're continuing our study in 1 Samuel. So if you can turn to the passage that Tanya read to us earlier on, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And uh, this morning we're having a look at chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. And uh, we're looking at the God of knowledge. And then next week, we're looking at the rest of the chapter. And it really will be a great help to me if you can read the rest of the chapter before next Sunday morning, chapter 2, from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Well, I'm going to pray and uh, ask God to help us as we come and hear his word. We do that every week. There's nothing mystical or magical about praying before we read the Bible, but I think it's a good idea to ask God to help us. Uh, God has given us his word, and he's given us his spirit. And it's his spirit who takes away uh, the blindness from our eyes and the hardness from our hearts. So we pray that God, who is here with us by his spirit, he's unseen, he's invisible, but he's here with us. And we pray that he may speak to us and he may take away all those thoughts that so often go through our minds that we may hear the word of God as we read the Bible. So let's pray together. Father, we do pray that as we come to the end of this morning, that what may be paramount in our minds is that old rugged cross, the only way by which we may enter your presence, 
and know God. Father, so many things go through our minds day by day, even this morning. Things that we are worried about, things that we are joyful about. We pray, Lord, that you may focus our minds and our thoughts, that we may hear your voice as we read your word. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Just very quickly, do check your cell phones. To uh, You may be using them for your Bible, but you may just want to put them on silent. If you do have a small baby or child with you who gives you difficulty, it'll be a great help to me and the rest of, well, all of us, if you can slip out. There are speakers on the veranda. There's a cry room on your right-hand side. There's closed-circuit TV there so that you can watch and hear the sermon. Well, last week we started our study in 1 Samuel. We're going to spend six, seven weeks in these opening chapters of Samuel. If you miss that, you really do need to go onto the website. Royden gave an excellent sermon, and uh, he really gave us the introduction to understand where we are and what 1 Samuel is all about. Let me quickly refresh you with a slide on the screen as to where we are in, in uh, salvation history. So it's important that you understand where we are in terms of God's story, God's Old Testament story. So let's uh, hit the lights there. You'll remember we had creation and the fall, Genesis 1 to 3. We then had the patriarchs. That's what they are called, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Genesis 12 to 50. And, of course, Jacob had 12 sons. His second son he was uh, Joseph, not his second son. His second last son was Joseph, who went into Egypt. And then the nation of Israel spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. You remember that? Then we had the Exodus, where God saved his people uh, through Moses. And then after saving them, Joshua led them into the promised land, And then after the death of Joshua, you have Israel under the judges. And judges is really the backdrop, the context to the book of Samuel. Because in judges, the nation of Israel blow hot and cold, on and off. There are times when they serve God, but more often than not, they turn against God. They turn against his word, and they start worshiping idols. And so we find one Samuel with the backdrop of judges. Remember in Judges 21, you may just want to turn back a few pages or on your cell phone, just scroll back to Judges 21, verse 25, the last verse in the verse of Judges, which is quite a tragic and quite a sad verse, because we read there, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there was, no, there was no worship of God, there was no obedience of God, there was no acknowledgement of God, because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a little bit what you read when you read the Sunday Times. So the question is, what was Israel going to do? But more importantly, what was God going to do? His people, his nation, through whom he would bless all nations. Remember the promise he made to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will bless all nations through you. And now the nation of Israel had turned against God. So what was Israel going to do? What was God going to do? Well, the answer is found in Samuel. And so we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and the answer is not a philosophy. It's not technology. It's not a new uh, best-selling book, 10 Ways to Save a Nation. No, the answer is found in a baby. A 
baby born from a barren woman. Remember chapter 1. Let me quickly refresh your memory. And if you didn't hear last week's sermon, you really do need to go back and listen to that on the website. Notice verse 2. You have this family. The husband, the father, is Elkanah. Uh, He had, verse 2, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. In fact, God closed her womb, verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Benina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so, and so Hannah is in the temple. And uh, you notice there, verse 10, she prays to God in her grief, in her anguish, in her tears. She's barren. And she prays to God, verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept, wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And God in his grace answers her prayer. And we pick that up in verse 19. Of chapter 1. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So there we have the background, there we have the context. Today we're having a look at chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, where Hannah, having given birth to Samuel, we don't know exactly uh, what the timing was between the birth of the child and her prayer, but it's quite obvious what she does in this prayer is she thanks God and she praises God for answering her prayer. But as you have a look at the prayer, which we're going to do in the next few minutes, you'll notice the prayer isn't so much about herself. The prayer is actually about God. And she actually teaches us and all the readers of 1 Samuel a great deal about God, about God's character, God's nature, God's purposes. So we can learn a great deal about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Hannah, as we read her prayer. So we're going to have a look at three things about God in this passage. Number one, the incomparable God. Number two, the God of reversals. And thirdly, the God of judgment. So those are the three things uh, we're going to have, have a look at. And just by the way, next week when we pick up from verse 11, we'll also be looking at judgment and we'll see that judgment begins at home. So don't miss reading that uh, before next week. Let me just go down one side road, which is, which is about prayer. Because there's a great deal of prayer here in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we can actually learn a great deal about prayer from chapter 1 and 2. The first thing that 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 we can learn about prayer is that prayer is not a mystical experience. It's not about feelings. It's not some kind of new age gimmick. It's not... um, it's not some form of spirituality. No, prayer is words. Prayer is talking to God. That's what prayer is. You engage both the head and the heart. So when the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? Jesus didn't say, cross your legs, hold up your hands, and empty your minds. He didn't say that. He said, say, our Father who is in heaven. 
So prayer is talking. Prayer is words where we talk to God. We also notice in these two chapters various kinds of prayer. So there's not just one kind of prayer. There are many kinds of prayers. And we notice here in chapter 2, obviously, there's praise, there's thanks, there's worship, there's adoration. It's quite obvious there, verse 1, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. Great joy, great happiness. But you also find that in chapter 1, there's petition and there's requests, and she pours out her heart to God. And, of course, we also know from other parts of Scripture that there's confession, where we confess our sins to God and ask him to help us to repent. So, so we find out here, not only is prayer words, but there are different kinds of prayers. The other thing that we learn, I think, in particular in this passage is that prayer means that you are absolutely honest with God. It's not just saying words. It's not getting the grammar right. No, it's opening up your heart. So there in chapter, chapter 2, there's great joy, there's great happiness, but in chapter 1, there's great grief, there's great despair. Notice verse 10, chapter 1. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So what does it tell us? It tells us that, that you can be honest with God where you are right now. That's what prayer is. It's being honest with God. It's telling God where you are. So we see here in chapter 1 the bitterness of her soul, her tears, her grief, her despair. She pours out her anguish before God. Let me tell you, there's only one way to deal with bitterness of soul. And we've all been there. And that's to tell God everything. Every detail. Every toxic drop. So the fact that Hannah's prayer, her prayer of anguish and despair, is included in Scripture tells us that Yahweh is a God who allows her to do that. And Yahweh is a God who allows us to do that. If you've never realized that, well, today's the day. Just one last comment about her prayer. It's, it's quite striking, verse 6, verse 7 that it took some years for Hannah to decide to pray about her closed womb. She believed in God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet it took her some years to tell God about her grief, her bitterness, her anxiety, her distress, her vexation. She had that because of the provocation of Penina, causing her all this anger. It's strange, isn't it? It took her years. But it's so true to human nature. So true to Christian human nature. Sometimes we have deep, deep wounds in the soul. And we don't tell God. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Haven't you found that? Perhaps you're angry with God. Well, you need to tell him. Perhaps you're bitter with God. Well, you need to tell him. Perhaps you no longer believe in God. 
You need to tell him. Thankfully, Hannah got there in the end. So it's never too late to realize that you can pray and tell God exactly where you are. Of course, he knows it already. But why don't you tell him? Because that's what prayer is. It's being honest. Well, let's have a look. First principle. Three principles. First principle is the incomparable God. So let's pick that up in verse 1 and 2. You with me there? I hope you do have your Bibles open in front of you or your cell phone, and you've got the passage in front of me, in front of you, so that we can study it together. Chapter 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Now, it's quite obvious that Hannah's prayer is personal. So she talks there about my heart, my horn, my mouth, I rejoice. Uh, The animal horn in ancient times represented strength and might. Uh, Yeah, it's probably dignity. My dignity is exalted in the Lord. But it's not just a personal prayer. She's actually praying on behalf of the community of Israel. It's a communal prayer. So as a child of Abraham, she's thanking God not just for saving her, but saving Israel from spiritual barrenness. Saving Israel from doing what was right in their own eyes. Saving Israel from their sins, their idolatry. So end of verse 1, Hannah rejoices in God's salvation. Well, what was God's salvation? Well, if you look at the end of chapter 1, it's a baby boy. That's God's salvation. Extraordinary, isn't it? In my office, I have a book called The Internet is Not the Answer. Now, written by Andrew Keane, and of course he's right. Technology, IT, the internet is a tool, both for good and evil, but it's not the answer. The vaccine to the virus is critical, but it's not the answer. In our country, education, employment is needed, desperately needed, but it's not the answer. Remember how Jesus put it so clearly, the heart of the human problem, it's a paraphrase, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Your heart, my heart. And because we are powerless, we need a savior. And because we are personal, we need a personal savior. And so God sends a baby boy to a barren woman. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? You see, the Old Testament, and especially what we're looking at here this morning, is a picture, a shadow of a New Testament event. Because there's another barren woman in the New Testament. Well, not quite barren, but a virgin. She gives birth to a son. And you shall call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the Old Testament and New Testament is one book. It's one story. God taking the initiative to rescue broken, rebellious, sinful people like Israel, like you and me. We need rescuing. We can't rescue ourselves. So if God doesn't do something, we we sunk. 
because then everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And look where that's got us. So Samuel, in a sense, is a forerunner, he's a shadow, he's a picture of a saviour who will be born to save the world. Notice verse 2. Let's have a look at verse 2. Again, we see the absolute uniqueness of God, which is Anna's prayer. Verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. So she's speaking of his moral perfection, that God is the source, the origin. He's the fountainhead of truth, truth with a capital T. He's the fountainhead of goodness. He's the fountainhead of right and wrong. He's the fountainhead of beauty. He's the fountainhead, the source of justice. Verse 2c, there is no rock like our God. Speaking of his strength, of his protection, it will never fail you. We talk about being between a rock and a hard place. Well, Hannah, hard places came and went, but her rock was the same. It never changed, never made a mistake, never failed her, ever. So perhaps you, Baron, Perhaps you're a virgin. Perhaps you're a widow. Perhaps you're a divorcee. Perhaps you've been abused. Perhaps you've just been diagnosed with with stage four cancer. Perhaps you've just suddenly lost your job. Well, this rock never moves, never changes. It doesn't make mistakes. It won't fail you. Verse 2b, for there is none besides you. She's talking about this incomparable God, that God is unique. He has no rivals. But it's more than that. It's not just that the God of Hannah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the greatest God, is the biggest God, is the strongest God. You remember when kids, when they say, when they fight with each other, my dad is stronger than your dad. I don't think my daughter's ever said that. Um, (laughs) Well, that's not the idea here. It's not that he's the best, he's the strongest, he's the greatest, and everyone else is below him. No, the idea here is that there is only one God. There are no other gods. There are imaginations. That's the idea here. It's the term monotheism. Mono being one, one God, as opposed to polytheism, which means many gods. Hannah's prayer tells us there is only one God. Deuteronomy 4, Moses tells us, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 verse 4, Paul says, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Now, of course, people have idols, self-made gods that they worship, and the worst being yourself. Of course, people imagine that there are other gods, Allah, or Buddha, or Krishna, or Vishnu. But actually, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's actually no god called Allah. It's imagination. It's a vapor. Does the devil use these concepts to deceive people? Of course he does. That's why they have power, real power. But they are not gods. Now, that's not very politically correct, is it? And yet, that's very clearly the prayer of Hannah. There is only one God. So perhaps you believe in another faith, another God, another religion. You have a right to that. 
We believe in freedom of speech, of religion, of belief. If you here this morning or listening on the website, you may have another belief, another God. I would just encourage you to check it out. Because you may find that when you get to the top of your religious ladder, that it's leaning against the wrong wall. Or there may not be a wall. Check it out. Second principle. First principle was the incomparable God. Second principle is the God of reversals. The God of reversals. Let me read from verse 3 again. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, and she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Now the, now the overriding theme, as you can notice from these verses, is the God of reversals. He reverses what is normal. But just quickly notice two aspects of the character of God that make that possible. The first aspect that we'll have a look at is at the end of verse 8. God is the creator of all things. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. My dear friends, you cannot be a Christian unless you believe that God is the creator of the world. That he's the source of everything, the whole universe. Now, Christians may sometimes differ as to how God created. It's an issue, but it's not a primary issue. The primary issue is that you must, if you want to be a Christian, you cannot be a Christian if you believe that we are here by fate or chance or luck. You can't be a Christian if you think we are just the product of mutation. Although when I look at some of our kids, I do wonder, but um, <laughs> we're not just the purposeless consequences of chemical equations. No, there's a God who has created. He's the source, the fountainhead of the universe, of everything. He has existed before creation. He, he exists beyond time. He created from nothing. That's why he's sovereign. That's why he can turn what seems to be the right way up the other way. Just notice there, verse 8b, by the way, just for your information, some people have unwisely argued that verse 8b uh, argues that the earth is flat. Did you notice that? You could argue, I think unwisely so, that the earth is flat. Notice there are pillars of the earth, and on them he has set the world. So the idea is that there are four pillars or four legs of a table, and God has set uh, the world like the tabletop on top of these legs. Perhaps verse 8b is the motto of the flat earth society. 
But of course, that's not the case. What we have here is poetry. We have metaphor. We have picture language. You have that throughout the Bible. You have that throughout language. We say that it's raining cats and dogs. I mean, that is picture language, isn't it? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We don't say, is it brown bread, white bread, rye, low GI? No, we understand. It's poetry. It's metaphor. It's picture language, which is exactly what Hannah is using here. He's the creator God. She also points us, verse 3, that he's the God of all knowledge. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. It's quite an extraordinary concept. The theological term is omniscience. It's a Latin word, omni meaning all, science meaning know. He knows all things. He knows everything, past, present, future. He's not dependent on our knowledge or our actions for his knowledge. So for God, there's no mysteries, there's no secrets. You can't hide from him, by the way. That's why if you're doubting his existence, you better tell him. He knows it already. God doesn't learn as he goes. He doesn't increase in his knowledge. His knowledge doesn't evolve. No, he knows everything all the time. It doesn't develop over time. Can you imagine that? God makes a decision today which is based on knowledge that will improve tomorrow. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. God has no succession of moments. He lives outside of time. Why? Because he created time. So God wasn't surprised when uh, Good Friday morning he finds Jesus on the cross. He didn't say to himself, my goodness me, what has happened? Last week everything looked fine. No, God knows all things. God is not surprised when the results come back and you are told that you have stage four cancer. It's not a shock to God. God has no past, no present, no future. He knows everything at the same time. Augustine, the great African theologian and church father, he said, God does not know all creatures because they exist. No, they exist because he knows them. Now, there's a great deal of mystery in that, of course. But there's also enormous comfort, enormous encouragement. It means that in God's economy, what you see is not always what you get. Because what you see can be very depressing, can't it? Very discouraging. And yet in God's economy, the God of reversals, what you see is not always what you get. The first will be last, and the last will be first in God's economy. In God's, God's economy, the real power wasn't actually in Rome. The real power was in Bethlehem. In God's economy, the real power isn't in Wall Street. No, it's in a Christian at prayer. Notice again the reversals from verse 4. The bowels of the mighty are broken. Those who were full now hire themselves out for bread. They're hungry. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. It's a catalog of reversals, isn't it? God can reverse every circumstance completely. 
So when you understand Hannah's prayer, you'll understand 1 and 2 Samuel. You'll understand why God chose David, a young shepherd boy from an unknown family, to defeat a vast army, one of the superpowers at that time, with a sling and five stones. It doesn't surprise you. It doesn't surprise you that a virgin gives birth to the Son of God at the back end of the Roman Empire. It doesn't surprise you that our greatest and most powerful enemy, who's the devil, is defeated by an ordinary carpenter on a rugged cross. It doesn't surprise you because you've learned from Hannah's prayer that this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God of reversals. We won't be surprised when we join John in Revelation 5, looking around God's throne room for the line of Judah. We won't be surprised to see a lamb on the throne whose throat has been cut but is still alive and standing. You see, our fallen world, notice verse 3, tells us that you need to be a self-made woman, a self-made man. Tells us, verse 4, our security is in military might. Verse 5 and 7 tells us our safety is in overseas investments, overseas property portfolios. And little Hannah says, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. There's no safety in this world, she says. It's only found in a rock. The God of all knowledge. C.S. Lewis has that lovely quote. It's a little bit scary, but it's absolutely true. C.S. Lewis said, I quote, The settled happiness and security we all desire... God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. We have plenty of fun, even ecstasy, but we are never safe. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and would be an obstacle to our return to God. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant houses but he will not encourage us to mistake them for home. End of quote. It's not safe, and it's not meant to be safe. Imagine if 12 months ago you said to your wife, let's get out of this country. I'm sick and tired. I just can't take it anymore. I've had enough. It's not safe. There's crime. There's corruption. There's ESCOM. There's potholes. There's Julius. There's Zilla. Uh, Let's just, let's just get away from it all. Let's find a safe, quiet, peaceful little home, perhaps a villa in Italy. <laughs> this world, my dear friends, is not safe. And it's not meant to be safe. We are meant to find our security in the rock. When the, when the history of the world is written... Perhaps it'll be a historian from Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard. I can assure you, I have no doubt, there will be no place in the story for Elkanah or Hannah. In fact, there won't even be a footnote. Will they? No, they won't. But in God's story, they will be key actors who rescued God's people so that from God's people would would come the ultimate savior. King Jesus. He's the God of reversals. Paul tells us that, have a look quickly at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Keep your place in 1 Samuel. We're near the end, so take heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul puts it so eloquently, the God of reversals. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Now, you need to read this whole chapter. It's, a, it's such a rich chapter, and it picks up, it fleshes out Hannah's prayer. Because Paul has just been talking about the fact that he's afflicted, that he's perplexed, that he's persecuted, that he's struck down. And then he says, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The God of reversals. Will you lastly and quickly notice verse 9, the God of judgment. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. So the winners in the end will not be the strong or the powerful or the successful or the famous. He who has the most toys will not win. No, only those who belong to Christ, the faithful ones. Notice, the wicked will be cut off in darkness, pitch darkness, and you're on your own. It's a frightening thought. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Now, my dear friend, if you are here this morning or listening on the website, If you are not right with God, if you have not submitted to King Jesus, whose death we remember this morning at the Lord's table, these should be terrifying words. He will break you into pieces. See, the problem is you think you're in control, don't you? You've got your property, you've got your investments, your family's good, everyone's healthy. You're in control. And then suddenly... There's a car crash. There's an illness. One of your teenagers goes off the rails. Who's in control then? You see, if you mess with God, if you reject God, if you ignore God, he'll break you into pieces. It's a, it's a terrifying concept. Imagine, you've seen those videos when a tsunami uh, hits, a, hits, a, uh, hits a beachfront and the tables and chairs and umbrellas and cars and, and buildings are just snapped like a matchstick. You've seen that? See those, those fires in Australia? Not the might, the power, the technology of the most sophisticated 21st century man or woman could stop those fires. Only rain could. The trees, the forests were snapped into pieces. Terrifying thought, isn't it? And yet, Hannah tells us that's what will happen. Whether you believe in God or not, it's what will happen. The only escape is verse 10c, the anointed king. There's only one escape. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
Do you know that the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah? And the Greek word for Messiah is Christos. So probably without even knowing, Hannah is telling us the answer, salvation, the only place of escape is found in the anointed king, the Messiah, the Christos. There's no other escape. Doesn't matter what you believe. The great doctor of grace, once again, Augustine, said no matter where you flee, he's there. I'll lock the front door, I'll close the electric gates, I'll go into my bedroom, I'll lock the door, i close the curtains. And he's there inside your head. There's absolutely no place for you to flee to. Do you want to flee from him? Rather flee to him. There's no place you can flee from an angry God except a saving God. One last warning. Find the Lord before you need him. Find the Lord before you need him. Let's pray. Let's spend some time in quiet. Father, once again, as we sit under the authority of your word, we are reminded that we are not in control. We are reminded that there's no place on earth where we can be safe. Lord, will you burn that truth into our hearts because we crave safety and security in this world. Will you forgive us? And will you help us to find safety in the only place where it is to be found? In the rock. In the cross. In the Messiah. And we thank you, Father, that Christ came into this world, born of a virgin. How extraordinary. To rescue people like us. We pray this in his name and for his sake.